minor figures, major transformations, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. Good afternoon. Um, I'd like to present some an overview of uh, Sefer Shoftim. I'll begin by posing two, three questions uh, in order to focus ourselves or to have some kind of opening. And then uh, we'll try to track uh, Sefer Shoftim as it follows, uh, as it winds through the very Shoftim. We'll begin with the first question, which is, if you look at the Sefer and you view uh, the various characters who are presented as being Shoftim, leaders, judges, uh, the, those in the beginning seem to be successful. If we were to rate them, on, uh, to, to give them certain ratings, we would rate them as being successful. They solved the problems. They were able to lead Am Yisrael, to rescue them from the problems they had. Towards the end, things get a bit more problematic. We find uh, characters are more fully developed on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, how we would judge them or how we would rate them um, is much more ambivalent. I mean specifically Yiftach and Shimshon. If you look at the Sefer, which has um, altogether, we talk about 21 chapters, um, the la- the, from Perikud Aleph onwards, we basically have only two figures, Yiftach and Shimshon. Both of them, uh, still like I would call the judgment regarding them ambivalent, we could call them somewhat enigmatic. On the one hand, they do great things. On the other hand, there's certainly uh, questionable practices, uh, either with their wives or their daughters. Um, Chazal and Rishonim later on... Um, struggled how to evaluate them. What happened? Why do we get problematic figures or more ambiguous figures at the end while things are much more plain and simple in the beginning? Is it simply a matter of luck? That's the way it happened to be? Or is there something deeper at work uh, which creates a dynamic which causes those at the end to be more problematic? Is it related to the fact that they're presented to us in much greater detail? We see them in full relief, unlike those in the beginning. And if so, why is that? Um, is, does it have to do with a certain spiritual uh, descent? Uh, things are indeed better in the beginning. The nation is a higher level. As we progress, things get worse, culminating in the final two chapters of Pilegesh Bagiva and Pesel Michal, when there's idolatry... Um, and the Znut, and therefore things are worse? Or does that have to do with the nature of their leadership, and is there a leadership issue here which causes their leadership to be more problematic? That's if you want question number one. The second one is, if they are, if I call them ambivalent, we know a lot about them. On the other hand, we have, immediately preceding Yiftach and Shimshon, we have a few psukim which are extremely enigmatic, Namely, talking here about Perik Yud, the first few psukim, uh, beginning of the 10th chapter. After Avimelech, who of course was a disaster, so uh, the leader who took over after him, Tola Loshet Yisrael, to deliver Am Yisrael from its oppressors, Tola ben Pua ben Dodo Ishi Sachar. The person who uh, assumed leadership was Tola ben Pua from Issachar. He happened to be located in Har Ephraim. 
וישפוט את ישראל עשרים ושלוש שנה וימות לכבש אמיר. He reigned for 23 years, he died, he was buried in uh, Shamir. That's all we know about him. What did he do? All we, we know nothing except the fact that he was a leader. We know his name, his location, his name, place. We know uh, the duration of his uh, leadership and his burial place. Nothing else. There's no episode, no incident, uh, no drama, nothing. We just know he came, he ruled, he left. Right. Uh, or Harrison, maybe. Uh, we continue uh, We continue a bit more. Another 22 years. Once more, what did he do? Um, he was very prolific in terms of his family. Um, so we know a lot about their limousines and their fleet. Uh, and what else? Um, right. So once more, we know about his family. We know a bit more about his transportation, about the fact that he had some, he had possessions, namely these cities or these settlements which he, uh, which belonged to him. And they're called Chavot Yair, which reminds us of Bamidbar and nothing else. And once more, he dies, he's buried in and out. We have here altogether 45 years of two figures, which uh, we know nothing about. If Tanakh wanted to tell us about these people, why does he not elaborate? Why does he tell us more full detail? If not, what's the matter? What's, what's, do, do they have any significance? Or is it simply... Just so happened to be that, uh, as was said, you occasionally get a ruler who is very uh, pariv, uh, and this is the result. The result is vayamod vayikaber and nothing else. So um, now, uh, to in order to understand this and uh, to answer a few other questions which I haven't asked, uh, let's uh, begin to look at Sefer Shufti more carefully, and uh, we'll begin by uh, focusing upon one point which is the nature of the phrase Shoftim. The word Lishpot is commonly translated to judge. Right? Usually if you look in a, you look in a set of, uh, it's called Book of Judges. However, uh, most probably, I'll say this straight out, the correct translation is not to judge, but rather to lead. Ushfatanu Malkeinu doesn't mean he will judge us in the, in the judicial sense. It rather means he will lead us. It's really shpot in Tanakh often means, at times it means to be a judge. It's used often in the context of judgment. However, uh, in Sefer Shoftim, it's not a book of judges, it's a book of leaders. And the role of the Shofet here is to lead the people. They are political figures. They don't belong, they're not judges in the sense that they sit and have to decide litigation between people. Rather, they, uh, they lead. Oh, and now the word shofet in Hebrew really has this dual meaning. To be a, to be a shofet can mean to be a manhig. It can mean to be a dayan. And a dayan, you can be a judge, you can be a leader. And the, and the word lishpot, what it has in common is one thing is the need to apply judgment, to discriminate between different things, to deliberate, to view different options, and to choose between different options. 
However, in one case, you are weighing political options and having to choose between them. Another one, you are weighing uh, issues which have to do with uh, people uh, and, and litiga- litigation and disputes. Now, there's often, as if it's not only a question of translation into English, um, there are many halachic sources which seem to convey the same problem as well. Um, to give just two brief examples, there's a discussion um, in the in, Bishon, you know, in medieval authorities, there's a discussion, what exactly is the relationship between the system, the court system uh, of Batei Din Rabbanim, what we call nowadays, and uh, the court system appointed by the king. Basically, is the judiciary appointed by the political arm of the state, or is it independent? Without getting to all the details, the Ran, who deals with this 14th century, he deals with this topic extensively, he focuses a lot upon the phrase, Ushfatanu Malkeinu, which uh, Shmuel uses to describe the roles of the king. It says, Ushfatanu Malkeinu. He clearly is reading the phrase, our king will judge us. He will be the person who resolves disputes. Uh, when, as so far, it seems to me, Pshutosha Mikra'i is, Ushfatanu Malkeinu means our king will lead us. He lead us politically. It requires it before. It requires using his better judgment, but not in the legal sense. Or uh, Balet Tosafot discuss the role of women in, in the judiciary, and they talk a lot about Dvora. Vishoftat Yisrael Baitahi. Once more, we talk about Vishoftat Yisrael Baitahi. Presumably, you are not talking about the fact that she's in the Supreme Court. You're talking about the fact that she is the political leader. She sits, and she leads the people in terms of politics, in terms of war. She is a golden ear, not a Dorit uh, Benish or uh, whatever. She is the, not the Supreme Court Justice, she is the Prime Minister, or whatever role we'll give her. And once more, they, they, their whole discussion assumes that uh, she is indeed in a legal role. However, Setting that aside, I've, to me at least it seems clear that the, the idea of means to lead. Now, if I ask someone, what are the two catchphrases of Sefer Shoftim? Which phrases automatically repeat themselves in our minds within Sefer Shoftim? What? Oh, okay, oh, so that's three maybe. If I saw Rabbi Nash, that would be the third. Uh, I, I would say, A, Vayishpot uh, Israel ex Shanim. And B, Perim Ahem and Melch Israel, Ishkal Hayashar Ben Aviaser. A, people do whatever they want. B, he ruled for such and such, such years, 40, 20, 80, whatever it is. Um, and of course, uh, at least when I went to elementary school uh, a few years ago, um, these three big uh, posters with uh, list of Shoftim, like presidents, uh, and each one, how many years uh, he reigned. And I remember as the third grader wondering, how Ehud ben Geras spent 80 years uh, as a leader. Uh, it's, a, it's a long time. Uh, it's not, not only you have to be very to start very young and uh, have to be sure in Paris, I guess. Uh, not only not only to start early and to finish uh, late. Also, who wants to be for 80 years a leader? Uh, it's uh, leading Jews for 80 years is a very trying uh, task. Um, what, uh, so what's, what really is the story? I think if you look carefully at the Psukim, 
the pasuk never says that he was a leader for 80 years, or actually, if you look carefully at Sefer Shoftim, throughout the first half of the Sefer, the phrase, Vayishpot at Yisrael X years, almost never, but it doesn't appear actually. But the phrase that I mentioned before, Vayishpot Yisrael such and such years, appears in the second half alone. In the first half, we have a different phrase. It's not a Shofet, it's a Moshiach. He delivered them, he rescued them from a crisis. Let's take a Tuti Psukim to illustrate this. Um, um, okay. Um, I'm a Perigimel um, Pasuk. Let's have Pasuk Yudalid. Eighteen years they were oppressed uh, and subordinated by Eglon Melech Moab. Um, <clears throat> they cried to the Kadosh Baruch Hu in prayer. Because he, he didn't establish a leader or a shofet. He appointed someone to rescue them, to deliver them from Eglon. Um, Ehud ben Gera ben Haimini. So Ehud uh, was divinely appointed to uh, rescue Israel. I'm skipping here a bit. Um, then the whole story how Ehud comes and assassinates Eglon. Um, then when the whole story is over, it says as follows um, Perek Gimel Pasuk Chavtet, uh, or Pasuk Lamed. Vatikana Moav Bayomu Tahadiyad Israel. Moab surrendered or subordinated by Bnei Yisrael, and things required for 80 years. Next pasuk, ve'acharav, afterwards, Shamgar Beranat. It never says that Ehud was a leader for a day. Ehud was really a military leader. He had a military role. He came. He uh, assassinated Eglon. He then led a force which defeated Moab. And as a result of that, things required for 80 years, Halavayaleinu, uh, but uh, he did not, um, but he never says after he ruled. It, does, it never says that he propelled his military success into a leadership role. It just says, things quieted down. But Yishkot Ha'aretz, Shmonim Shana. Ve'acharav ha'shamgar ben Anat, ve'yachet plishtim, she'ezot ish b'amad ha'bakar, Vayosha Gamut Yisrael. Afterwards, he was succeeded by Shamgar ben Anat. Apparently, at some later point, there was trouble with the Plishtim. And the Plishtim began to raid Am Yisrael or whatever. So Shamgar leads this raid. He defeats, you know, he takes the force of Sayeret or whatever. He leads a raid. He takes Amat Bakars And with his whip, he somehow defeats uh, the Plishtim. Vayosha Gamut Yisrael. So he doesn't, he doesn't lead either. He's really some kind of commando who leads a successful raid. The Plishtim, uh, therefore, uh, cease to, uh, to, to, to destroy, cease to basically to fight on Israel. There are no more raids anymore. Things calm down. Once more, Vatishkotaharetz, um, if you look at the others, the same is true of all the other manhigim. I'll point out the exceptions in a moment. But essentially, there is no real central leadership. There is no political leadership which Sefer Shoftim presents to us. It presents wars, military, military leaders, 
people who in the time of crisis assume uh, leadership, they lead military forces, and that's it. And then things calm down, and they go back to whatever lifestyle they had before. It says the, the verb shin peitet, or the root shin peitet, uh, appears once by Otniel in um, Perek Gimel. Um, this is Perek Gimel Pasuk Tet, 3.9. Vayizaku b'nei Yisrael Hashem, once more the same phrase we saw before by Yehud, b'nei Yisrael cry out to the Kadosh Baruch Hu, Vayakom Hashem Moshia, not a Shofet. Once more, Kadosh Baruch Hu provides them with an answer to the, to the crisis, a Moshiach, someone who delivers them, it, um, and indeed he rescues them, it Otniel ben Kinaz, Otniel the same thing, but he alav Ruach Hashem, he's divinely inspired, Vayishpot Yisrael, now, it never says here, Israel 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, 10 years. It never says anything that he assumes a political rule. It says, he's inspired. means to lead. He leads them into battle. He leads them in this battle against uh, the... Kushan Mishataim, Tia Ruach Hashem, Vayishpod Yisrael, Vayetzei La Milchama, Vayiten Hashem Biyado, etc. Vatishkot Haaretz Abayim Shana. Once more, things calm down. So we never have here, Vayishpod Yisrael X years. We have always is, Vatishkot Haaretz Abayim Shana, Shimonim Shana, and so on and so forth. We have here the, the verb which constantly appears is Vayoshia, Moshiim, Vayakam Hashem Lehem Moshia. And as a result of the Teshua, as a result that they are successful, and Kash Baruch Hu provides them with military victory, so therefore things calm down, and we never hear anything else. We never told what they do, we, we never told they lead. The only time it says, Vayishpot, Vayishpot ba milchama. What to put, Vayishpot Yisrael, Vayitzel milchama. There is no uh, role of constant political leadership here. There is one other figure who has the phrase, the verb uh, lishpot, which is dvora. Over there it says also, vishoftat Yisrael ba'itahi. Now, let's prepare dalit pasuk dalit. Vishoftat Yisrael ba'itahi. And there indeed, it may be, regarding dvora, it may very well be that her role was more was indeed a leadership role. It was not only, you know, unlike the others, she indeed is leading. It may be spiritual leadership and not political leadership. Uh, certainly, she doesn't. She does not seem like in the sense. On the one hand, she does not seem to be a leader in the classic political role here, and she appoints or she tries to delegate to others. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it does use the phrase shofta, which is a. I tend to believe it's spiritual leadership which of course is important, but is not uh, properly speaking political leadership. Uh, and there too it says at the end of the whole story, at the end of Perikei, Vatishkot Haaretz Arbaim Shana. She's a prophet. She, uh, she's a spiritual leader, but not necessarily a political one. Secondly, those I mentioned before who tend to view her role as a more legal role, 
this may be part of the reason. It's not simply that they treat the verb lishpot to meaning to judge in the legal sense, but it may also be because in the context of the first half of Sefer Shoftim, we don't expect to find political leaders. And so if you shoftah, it must be something else. But anyway, even if we grant the fact that Dvorah is the exception, she's the exception that proves, that proves the rule. And because she, what, what does she do? She goes out and appoints uh, Barak to be the military leader. What Sefer Shoftim, the first half, Prakim Aleph Tet is constantly looking for, is someone to provide the military leadership. Essentially, we're looking here for Magadim, for Alufei Pikud, for Ramatkal. We are not looking here for political leadership, and we're not finding it. With the, and even Dvorah, who has said maybe the exception, she also has to find this. And therefore, to go back to what I said before, I don't think Ehud was a leader for 80 years. Nor do I think that Othniel, for that matter, either. They were simply, they, they had their moment in the spotlight. They, they rescued Am Yisrael, Vayoshi Aim, and that's it. And then they retire, or they go back to whatever they were doing before, and there's no real leadership. Or to put it differently, there's no political leadership. It's totally decentralized. They live maybe in a tribal uh, setup. Maybe they live each one in his own, uh, his own farm, his own, uh, the, the, the own parcel, parcel of land he got when Yeshua divided the land. But there's no real political structure or political leadership. Now, this is, now things, uh, as time goes on and the more time passes, of course, uh, it becomes more and more problematic. The anarchy uh, which uh, develops as a result of lack of a central leadership presumably gets much worse. Uh, and um, they said at some point they decide it's time for centralized leadership. And this is the story where, of Gidon. Gidon has the same role. He too, the story of Gidon, if you remember, is Gidon comes, there's a tremendous uh, oppression from Midian. And they still feel they can't survive any longer, that there's much too much uh, suffering uh, militarily. And Gidon cries out to Kadosh Baruch Hu, how can this go on? Things are, things are horrible, we can't continue like this. Kadosh Baruch Hu once more appoints him to lead a military raid against Midian. He's successful, he defeats them. And then the people come to him and request that he become a political leader. This is the story of Perekhet. Perik Chet Basuk Chafbet. After the after the Navi tells us all the story about all of his battles, Vayomru Ishisel Gidon. The people came to Gidon and requested Mishol Banu Gamata Gambincha Gambenbenecha. We want a dynasty. We want a stable political uh, system. We want to establish a monarchy because. At the moment, there is no political leadership. Everything is a hefker. And uh, as a result of this, Mishol Banu. So for the first time, we find the phrase, Limshol, to rule. And they also request to have a system in place which can provide stability and succession. Because with the lack of the whole decentralized system and no leadership, uh, things are not being properly run. Just a moment. Uh, and then, um, they come and say, please rule us because you have rescued us. Now, it's a leap, of course. A military leader is not necessarily a political leader and vice versa. 
but they come and say sin, like we all know, like Washington, like uh, like Rabin, like many other generals who then have a political career. So they have the same idea. Mishol banu kihoshatanu, rule over us because you delivered us. And Gidon refuses. So he refuses. He has a whole philosophy of political uh, Israel, which uh, I will not get into at the moment, but he rejects the plea. Clearly what's going on here is they're requesting to establish a system of government and he disagrees with their political principles. He denies the request. We then get a story which is much worse of Avimelech, uh, and now, skipping over Avimelech, let's go now to these figures I mentioned before. And here I think we come to the crucial role that these two unsung heroes, namely Tola and Yair, play. And now let's go to uh, Perak Yud. Um, Perak Yud, Pasuk Aleph. Vayakom acharei Avimelech lehoshiat Yisrael. Once we're talking lehoshiat. Now, it's, it's still the same paradigm in which there's a military crisis, there's no security, and you need a solution to the security problems. Lo shiat Yisrael, tola ben pu'ah. Now, it doesn't say how he achieved it. The focus shifts from his military accomplishments to his political accomplishments. Vayishpot et Yisrael. This is the first time, once we're made with the exclusion of Dvorah, it's the first time that someone actually goes from a position of Moshiach to Shofet. And he really is the first Shofet. Because he no longer is a Moshiach who then retires Vatishkot Haaretz. It doesn't say Vayakov Achrei Avimelech Loshet Yisrael after Avimelech so has ascended a Tola Vayoshiach Yisrael and Vatishkot Haaretz Arbaim Shana. Rather it says after Avimelech, so Tola comes to deliver Am Yisrael from whatever security threat there was, Vayishpot, and he then becomes a political leader who rules over there for 23 years, and the time period here is no longer, it doesn't relate to the calm after the military episode, it rather relates to the period of his rule. Vayishpot Yisrael, Vayamot Shamir. What's the significance of Vayikaver B'Shamir? In other words, why does it matter where he's buried? I think it's for this point. In other words, it's, uh, he's a ruler. He's a political per- persona. He's a, he's a dignitary. He's buried ceremonially. It, it, it's, it's, no, it's not like once he, uh, once he rescued them, he, this, he, he's off the stage. He remains on stage to the conclusion of his life. And therefore, even how he's buried already is of interest. At any rate, uh, he assumes the role of a leader for the first time in the Sefer. Now we go, Vayakum Acharav. Immediately after him, we have Yair HaGiladi. Vayishpot Yisrael. So now we take the same idea, but to its next stage. Because Tola is a transitionary figure. He begins as a Moshiach, and he's able to propel that into becoming a Shofet. Yair isn't even a Moshiach. After they've established already a rule of, a, there's already a, a ruler, and his leadership politically, so now they are interested in a successor. So if it's not a monarchy the way they suggested to Gidon, 
So they appoint someone else. Vayako Macharav Yair. We're not told exactly how he's appointed, whether it's through charisma or some other uh, mechanism. Whatever, whatever, however it happened, Yair is now a shofet who is not a Moshiach. We have left uh, the paradigm of military leadership ad hoc, and we don't even need a military career now to make you into a leader. We now appoint political leaders for the sake of leadership. So the moment Tula is off, Tula dies, and we need a new person. So we take someone who has a civilian background. He doesn't even come from a military career, and he now becomes the the shofet. And now the basuk tells us the following. No, excuse me. He has 30 children who have 30 ayarim. Why is this so important? It seems to be totally trivial and totally insignificant. Um, I think what we're being told here is, uh, don't get too angry with me, uh, he established a bureaucracy. He puts into place, he has deputies, he has bureaucrats, they even have privileges and perks. They have their, uh, they're issued uh, cars for, or donkeys from the state. But we're talking here about this. Basically, the bureaucracy arrives on the scene. Now, for the modern day uh, citizen of a, of a well-organized country, so bureaucrats are not, it calls them bureaucrats, not necessarily a compliment. Uh, but it is essential for the welfare of a state. To go to a state like Iraq or any of these quote-unquote failed states with this total anarchy, it's exactly because there's no civil service. There was the establishing of a civil service and being able to put into place an administration. What he does is he establishes a civil administration. And I assume that the Shloshim Banim are not, we're not being told his genealogy. We're being told the fact he puts into place a system of deputies, people who are helping him rule the country, or he has an administration. And he has people who are busy running various areas of the country, whether it's welfare, education, um, sanitation, whatever it is. Shloshim Banim, Shloshim means you have 30 heads of departments who are, maybe are compensated with Ayarim, but they're establishing an organized state. And in this regard, it's a tremendous uh, move forward. No longer is this a charismatic military leader who appears in the scene and rides off into the sunset. You now have someone who's established a stable system of government. But things are becoming established and permanent and, uh, and there's a certain amount of stability. Okay, this is, so I think these two minor figures, these two enigmatic figures we know nothing about, serve a crucial role, because they're basically the bridge for the transition, the first half of the Sefer, to the second half of the Sefer. The first half in which there's no stable leadership, and only, as I said before, military figures appearing on the scene, popping up, solving a problem, and disappearing again. To the second half, which already is trying to establish a more stable government. And this, of course, will lead up to Sefer Shmuel, in which they finally established a full-fledged government with a, with a monarchy and, uh, and, and, and the succession and, and, and the dynasty of Beit David, etc. Now, uh, I'd like to point out one, uh, make one comment now, and then we'll move on to the second half. The, f- the last four or five chapters deal with two episodes, uh, 
of Pilagish uh, Bagiva, the civil war which ensues over there uh, as a result. <coughs> there was the scandal of Pilagish Bagiva, the civil war, and uh, additionally, uh, and also there was the Pesel Micha. There was basically Avodah Zarah and, and Gilea Rayot, and if we add the civil war, we could say probably Shvichud Damim as well. We have over there, basically, right, society falls apart over there, religiously, and also uh, civilly, of course, morally. Uh, what uh, now Chazal tell us, or there are two opinions in Chazal, one of them assumes that all the events which are recorded from Perikid Zion onwards actually happened in the beginning, in the earlier, in the earlier time frame. In other words, they belong chronologically to the first half of the Sefer. Why would Chazal tell us that? I mean, they appear at the end. Normally, we assume as a rule of thumb, "Ein mukdamu muhar ba Torah," "Ein mukdamu muhar ba Navi." Excuse me. We, as a rule of thumb, we should assume that "Yesh mukdamu muhar." The things are presented chronologically, unless we are told otherwise. And if you read the Navi, presumably, if it appears in Perak Yudchet Yutet, and it was uh, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, it happened after chapters 9, 10, 11, and not before. Presumably, that's a logical thing to assume. Um, Chazal nevertheless tell us that they think it happened Dafka in the early part. So it's now, why why they make this claim? So first, it's not difficult to explain why it appears at the end of the Sefer. The reason is pretty simple. The first 17 chapters deal with the political history, and then social history comes in the last five chapters. So in other words, even though it may have happened earlier, but there's not only chronological arrangement, there's also thematic arrangement. And uh, first, we presented the political history of all the various rulers uh, or Moshi'im. And then, at the end, we deal with issues, the religious, social uh, issues. So that's, it's not difficult why it appears there, but nevertheless, that only explains to me why there's no kushia, why it's not problematic for this to be at the, at the end. But why would I want to place it? So let's just say, we, it may have happened any time. Why assume it happened in the earlier parts? I think the answer is exactly what we saw until now. When you talk about lack of leadership and decentralized, ein melech be Israel, ein now melech means a king, but melech also means a government. Right? The word melech can mean malchut, uh, or, or to put it differently, it doesn't only mean necessarily a king, a person, but it can also mean a, system, can also mean a government. Uh, just to give uh, one um, extreme example, Chazal tell us that Malkat Shva was not a woman. So it says uh, Malkat Shva. So it, says, it doesn't mean Malkat, it means Malchut. No, it's Mal- Malkat Shva, it means not the queen of Shva, of Shva, it means the kingdom of Shva. It's Malchut. Because the word Melech and, and, uh, and Malkat or Malkat can mean, it doesn't mean it's in the person, it can mean simply the, the government. And Melech itself means there's no government in, in Israel. There's the anarchy, when there's no central leadership, when everything's decentralized. But Pesel Micha reflects a whole atmosphere in which everything's decentralized, in which there's no leadership which can impose its will upon the, the periphery or upon a, other parts of society, in which everything is tribal. Now, this fits much better the paradigm of the first half than the second half. In the first half, and not only do you find rivalry military between various tribes, but there's no leadership, there's no central leadership. So therefore, when Chazal asked themselves, 
these episodes, which are indicative of lack of any central religious or political leadership, where do they happen? Most probably in the beginning and not at the end. At any rate, that's an aside. Let's now go back and trace what happens with the Shoftim towards the end of the Sefer. And here, um, we come across Yiftach and Shimshon. As I said in the beginning, they're problematic figures. They're problematic because on the one hand, they do very great things. And we look up to them as Shoftim. On the other hand, uh, they're also problematic because they do things which are very problematic. Uh, or to put it differently, I'll quote for you the Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara says in Masechet Rosh Hashanah the following. Uh, I mean, it has a famous statement, Yiftach bedoro, Kishmuel bedoro. Yif, the authority of Yiftach in his generation is the same as Shmuel. To put it differently, to put it me, differently a weak leader or a... a ne- or poorly, uh, a weak leader is just as good as, uh, or it's like, it's like this, you know, a problematic leader is just as good, has the same authority as a great leader. Words, even though Shmuel is a towering figure, and Yiftah is not, nevertheless, the authority they have, political authority, religious authority, is the same. However, that, the phrase Yiftah Bedorok, Shmuel Bedorok, that Yiftach is equal to Shmuel in terms of his authority, that's the catchphrase, that, uh, that's the popular catchphrase. The Gemara itself has a much longer, uh, it's a much longer quote. It's as follows. I'm reading from Masech Rosh Hashanah, Daf Chafei. Lama lo yitparshu shmotem shel zkenim? Why does the Torah not tell us the name of all the leaders in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu? I'm skipping here a bit. Um, the Omer, the Yomer Shmuel El Ha'am. This is a, pas- a quote from Sefer Shmuel. Hashem, Asher Asat Moshe Vetaron, the Omer Vayishlach Hashem Yeruvav et Bedam et Yiftach ve'et Shmuel. So Shmuel, when he addresses Am Yisrael in the transition from the Shoftim to the Malchut, when Shmuel tra- transitions Am Yisrael into monarchical system, so he says like this. He mentions Moshe, Aaron, Shmuel. Yiftach bedan Yerubal. Tell us Chazal, Yerubal zegidon. Yerubal refers to Gidon. Bedan refers to Shimshon, because he's in the tribe of Shimshon. Yiftach is Yiftach, of course. The Omer, and the Pasuk tells us, Moshe ve'aron bechoanav u'shmuel bekorei shemo, and here is the quote I'm interested in, Shakal hakatuv, shakal from Mishkal. In other words, he measured the, the pasuk measured shlosha kalei olam kishlosha chamurei olam. Three lightweights, as opposed to three heavyweights. Lightweights spiritually, lightweights politically, as opposed to heavyweights. The heavyweights are Moshe, Aaron, and Shmuel, and the lightweights are Shimshon, Yiftach, and Gidon. Even a featherweight. The, the lightest of the light. And he assumes a position of leadership. He's like the greatest knight, the greatest ruler. If, uh, what Yiftach is characterized as Kal Shabakalim. And we're told that even the lightest, uh, the lightest of the light, 
the most extreme lightweight is nevertheless as if he's a heavyweight. Why? Or, or what's, what is reflected on Yiftach's career? So now let's go back to Yiftach and view this in light of the paradigm we saw before. I'm going now to begin Perikud Aleph. I'm, I'm skipping here to Perikud Aleph Pasuk Dalid. Vayehi miyamim after a pause. Vayilachamu bnei Amon in Israel. Bnei Amon went to war with Am Israel. Vayikashel ilchamu. And now there's another military crisis. In other words, we've had here 45 years of quiet with Tola and and Yair, and um, and afterwards, um, and then uh, finally Bnei Ammon. And there's a few more years of quiet. We don't know how many years. And then all of a sudden, there's a new crisis, and we need. We no longer need only a Shofet. We now need a Moshia. Because once more, there's a new military crisis. Now, obviously, the right model is for the Shofet, the political leadership, to appoint a military leader. So the Shofet, the Semit Dvarah did. Semit Dvarah appointed Barak. We expect now is whoever succeeded Yair to come now and to appoint a figure who can lead them into battle. But under, of course, there was that the military is subordinate and is acting in the mission of the political leadership. So this is, this is indeed what happens. Um, so they go to Yiftach, and they request that he lead the military expedition. Become an officer, be a katsin. And you go back and you go to war with Bnei Amon. Now, Yiftach, of course, it makes sense, maybe yes, maybe no, but there's certain logic to appoint Yiftach as a military leader. He's living by his sword. That's what we told him the before. He was an outcast. Being an outcast and having other outcasts join him on the Shemekimu Pochazim, so he's obviously living, uh, he's living in the, in the badlands, so to speak, and his sword is his means of survival. So as such a figure, Yiftach is a good idea to, to appoint him to lead a military, uh, to a military unit. But however, what does Yiftach say? Yiftach doesn't want, so they offer to be a katsin, v'nilchama b'vnei amon. V'nilchama Yiftach, l'gizikneh gilad pasuk zayin, v'atem, s'neitemu ti, etc., and so now they come and say, Now we, they apologize for casting him out of society, etc. If you will fight Bnei Amon, And so they basically offer him to become a political leader. If you are successful in battle, you will now, we will allow you to be the Rosh. So then they limit it to Gilad apparently. And he now repeats the offer and says to them, If you appoint me to go to battle against Bnei Amon, and I'll be victorious, 
Anochi Ayelachem Lirosh. I will be the leader, the political leader. No longer this is Kenim, no longer some kind of uh, collective political leadership, maybe even a spiritual political leadership. From now on, if I beat Bnei Amon, if I defeat them, I become also the Rosh, the political leader, the Shofet. So he wants to achieve both uh, objectives, to be a Rosh and a Katsin. They offer him to be a Katsin. He demands to be a Rosh. He becomes, in the end, a Rosh and a Katsin. No, it's Bo, no, it's a player coach in, uh, in sports terms. He becomes both a Ramatkal and a Rosh Hashanah. Now, the problem is, he may be suited to be a Ramatkal, or probably in Faket Sayer it would be a better choice, uh, but he's not, he's very ill-suited to be a political leader. And if we see what happens as the story develops, Yiftach is extremely impulsive. He knows what's, what characterizes him is his impulsivity. He, the whole idea of the neder, first of all, making a neder is problematic per se. It's really problematic, though, to make a neder, he doesn't use his judgment when he makes the neder. He doesn't stop to think, you know, he doesn't properly think out the consequences of the oath he takes. He doesn't say to himself, well, if I formulate as follows, what will happen? Uh, he jumps ahead and impulsively... Now, he's... He's expressing true religious fervor. He's really expressing uh, what he feels. But the problem is, is that he doesn't think things out until the end. Uh, one may add, maybe characterizing him as a Ben Zona may be part of the same thing. There too, he notes, he may be conceived impulsively, but certainly he's acting impulsively. And he's a military figure. He, uh, his whole life is with the outskirts of society. He is... He has not been living in society to be aware of the needs of society, the, the, the various pressures in society, the conflicting uh, conflicting elements in society. He's coming from the outside. He uh, His personality is impulsive. So to lead a military expedition it makes sense. Often these are the, exactly the characteristics or the character traits which enable a person to be good militarily. But these, they, do not, they don't always make for the proper political leadership. And this, in a sense, is the tragedy of Yiftach. Yiftach would have been an excellent Moshia. Had Yiftach been born a uh, hundred years before, and he hadn't been in the time of Shamgar or of Ehud, or he had Dvaras summoned Yiftach instead of Barak, he would have been wonderful. He would have gone, he would have engaged in his diplomatic uh, back and forth with Amon or whoever it was over there, he would have gone to battle, he would have defeated them, and he would have gotten his moment of glory, and that's it. The problem is, when he returns, he is no longer in the period of the Moshi'im. If we divide the Sefer into two periods, Tkufat Moshi'im and Tkufat Shoftim, he belo- he's in Tkufat Shoftim, and presumably that's why he also made the request. He knows that in his time and age, the... <coughs> The, the ultimate achievement is not to be a Moshiach, it's to be a Shofet. He wants to be a Shofet. He doesn't want to be a Moshiach. He doesn't want to be only a Moshiach. He wants to be a Rosh and a Katsin. And uh, I said before, had he lived a hundred years before, Katsin would have been the only objective. He would have been an excellent Katsin. But he wants to be a Katsin and a Rosh. 
and he lacks the qualities to be a good uh, Rosh. And therefore, the whole story of his daughter and, uh, and the, her tragedy tells us a lot about, not only about, uh, not only about uh, the personal tragedy, it tells us what kind of leader he was and how he was able to lead later on. Um, and with the, so, so I go down to Pasuk Chavtet, V'tiel Yiftach Ruach Hashem, he's divinely inspired, exactly what's said by Otniel. But Otniel, though, to be a Moshiach, to, or, or to put it differently, in a war to be divinely inspired, V'tiel Ruach Hashem is excellent. Uh, however, Vayavort uh, Gilad, but then he makes the neder. Now in Pesuk Lamed Bet, Vayavor Yiftach Obeyamu Lachem Bam, and here he does excellently. Vayikanu Bnei Amor Bnei Bnei Yisrael. Pesuk Lamed Gimel. This is exactly like the first half of the Sefer. And now we get the story of his daughter, which illustrates that he really doesn't belong as a Rosh, only as a Katsina. And then we get, of course, a civil war. Now, this is, once more, it's reminiscent of the first half of the Sefer. And Yiftach is acting there. Well, he's not acting, he's not thinking, uh, what, what should a leader be thinking? After the war, he's confronted by, this is Perik Yudbet. He's confronted by Amon. How can you take us with you? It's Perik Yudbet Pasuk Aleph. And then, so he gets into a big fight with them. Now, all, as a Katsin, you can somehow understand the mindset. Um, but no, I endangered my life. I went to battle. The, the bullets were whizzing by my ears, and you were sitting at home. And now you come and complain. You and you want part of my glory, as a rosh. If he wants to lead on Israel, as a leader, he has to know to be moderate and not to let his impulses and his, the fact that he's insulted by them to uh, get the, not not to rest the judgment. He can't be impulsive. He has to use his, his head and not his uh, and not his emotions. And the head, of course, says over here. Try to have reconciliation. Try to, don't, don't get to civil war. He's uh, they come and complain, and he jumps straight head forward into a civil war. They egg him on, and he uh, he, he takes the bait, and he gets into a civil war. What he should really be doing, of course, is trying to engage in reconciliation. Uh, but he's impulsive. Um, and then you have the tragedy there of, uh, of, of the Shibolat and Ephraim. Pasuk he becomes a shofet. He dares like a fra- like Yair and Tola, but he really is inappropriate. And uh, basically, what, what, what is the hallmark of his shvita? A civil war. And this is his tragedy. He was the right person at the wrong time, or the wrong person for the right time, but he would have been excellent as a Moshiach, he is very poor as a shofet. And this brings us now to, then we have in, I mean, Perek Yudbet, Pasuk Chet, Vayishpot Acharav at Yisrael Yivtsan Libet Lachem. Yivtsan, once more, is this figure, we have a Pasuk or two about him. Once more, Vahilo Shloshim Banim, Shloshim Banot, Shloshim Banot Shilach Achutza, Shloshim Banot Yivil Vavin Achutz. He has 30 children, or 30 sons, Thirty daughters he marries off, and he brings in thirty daughters-in-laws. To put differently, he's engaging in diplomacy. These are diplomatic marriages. He's engaging in diplomacy. He, basically, after Yiftach leaves the country in a civil war, he picks up the pieces. Like Tola and Yair, he's trying to reestablish a stability and a much more thought-out uh, program uh, 
and having exchanges with different countries rather than uh, impulsively engaging uh, in, in his uh, in his emotions uh, and the spirit of the moment. Vayishpod uh, Israel sheva shanim. He restore Yiftach was for six years. He takes seven years of calm to restore things. Vayishpod Ahav Yisrael Ilona Zvuloni. Another ten years. There's a return to the paradigm of these uh, shoftim, a pasuk or two. But what they do is they basically stable the ship. Everything they, they restore the calm that was necessary when Yiftach came and as a Moshia then tried to be a shofet with the style of Moshia and ruined everything. So they come now and restore the same stability and tranquility that was necessary. So you have Yiftzan and Elon. We have another third figure. All these minor figures are doing a major uh, achievement, which is they're basically establishing political stability, political rule. Without them, you can't transition later on into Shaul and David and the monarchy uh, in Sefer Shemuel. So here we get already grandchildren. It means there's stability, there's continuity. And, uh, and so forth, there's a certain bureaucratic, uh, or c- c- there's an administration, there's civil service which is being, uh, <coughs> put into effect, um, and then, Parakid Gimel, another military crisis. And, uh, once more, we have here the same problem. In the Tkufa of the Shoftim, we now need a Moshiach. As long as things are stable, and as long as they're marrying after the, the daughters and marrying after sons, and they're busy having banim and bnei banim and ayarim and ayarot, so things are fine. So then the shofet is doing a paramount. Uh, the paramount goal is to establish stability. But well, now there's another crisis here. There's a need for Moshiach. There's no doubt about that. You now need uh, once more a military leadership. And the question once more is. Will we have the model of Dvorah and Barak? Or uh, we have the model of Yiftach? Because Yiftach already gave us a Moshiach who tried to become a Shofet. And now we get here Shimshon. If I said that Yiftach was impulsive, uh, what would I say about Shimshon? Uh, Shimshon is impulsivity uh, at the utmost degree. And now, I, I, this is what I had in mind when I said before, Kalei Olam. The, the, the idea of kale, the idea of kale olam, being a lightweight, has, has there's two connotations to it. One is spiritually. You know, it's Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Aaron Shmuel. The political leadership is a function of the spiritual leadership. While Shimshon Yiftach, it's the reverse. The leadership is a role. You know, it's a political role to begin with. The political authority is not derived from the spiritual authority. That's one reason why they're kalim as opposed to chamurim. But it also means they're impulsive. Kalek, in other words, even though they're, they're impulsive and uh, they don't, they're not well thought out. Nevertheless, uh, since they're the leaders at the moment, they have the authority. And uh, this is what happens by Shimshon now. Shimshon is the exact same thing. With one, um, with one difference, it seems to be, which is, unlike Yiftach, who very much desires and proactively seeks to be a leader... Shimshon doesn't seem to really want it. It's almost thrust upon him. Uh, Shimshon is much... Uh, you get the impression Shimshon wants to live his life as a private citizen. He's engaged in war and in battle. 
but he's not really interested in, in being a leader. He never demands it, and uh, to the best of my impression, he seems to be trying to escape it whenever he can. But nevertheless, the problem here is we need a Moshiach, we need both a Shofet and a Moshiach. And when you show appears in the scene, he will be like Iftach, a prime candidate to be a Moshiach, but a problematic candidate to be a Shofet. Now, it seems to me that the Nazirut is part of the story. This is a whole uh, separate topic, but for our purposes now, even describing Iftach and Shimshon as being impulsive, and, and Shimshon certainly, the idea that Nazirut was somehow to channel this and to curb uh, this, in other words, the Nazirut imposes restrictions, uh, and it seems to me it's a way to channel these impulsive energies. On the one hand, you tell him to grow his hair long. On the other hand, you establish restrictions. You then, at some point, uh, it's an attempt to make, to elevate the impulsivity to some kind of spiritual level because it is being directed and channeled towards the Kadosh Baruch Hu. At any rate, Shimshon is born. And um, I'm skipping now the story. Let's go back for a moment just to the dialogue between Kadosh Baruch Hu and Manoach. It's Perikid Gimel, Pasuk Hey. So Eshet Manoach is told she have a child. Once we have here the lehoshia, let's say who yachel lishpot at Israel, who yachel lehoshia at Israel, miad plishtim, he'll be a Moshe. He'll deliver them. Okay, now let's. Uh, now I'm skipping here to when you, when Shimshon actually begins to be active. Um, Vatachel Ruach Hashem, prepare you to give him a pasuk, chafei. Vatachel Ruach Hashem lefa'amo, the same inspiration we met by Yiftach and by Niel. Ruach Hashem is mefa'emet bo. And he now, um, and now we have all the stories of interaction uh, with Plishtim. Um, so let's, let's begin, let's start from the beginning. I'm in Perik Yudalit Pasuk Vav. Vatitzlach alav Ruach Hashem. Every time it says Ruach Hashem, basically you had a Moshiach who's inspired and acting at, at the moment uh, with inspiration. Uh, he's not necessarily being a political leader, as I said before. But, or put differently, it's, uh, it's energy. Ruach Hashem means a huge amount of energy, divinely inspired energy, but it's energy for the, mom- for the moment. Um, okay, he rips it apart. Uh, we have here a person with tremendous physical power, who is, uh, he's an excellent Moshiach, he can rip apart an animal, he can certainly defeat the Plishtim, and that's what happens throughout uh, this raw energy, and it's raw, it's a raw energy which the Zirut is trying to channel, and he's constantly engaged in the Plishtim as a Moshiach. Um, okay, and once we, every, every so often, we get another time, like it's Tzach Ruach Hashem, and so on and so forth, um, then, but it's, we have Tetzach Ruach Hashem in Perek Yudal Pasuk Yutet, in Perek Tetzval Pasuk Yudalid, every so often periodically, but Tetzach Ruach Hashem. And then finally we get, and then we get to Perek Tetzval Pasuk Chaf. Vayishpot et Yisrael bimei plishtim esrim shana. He becomes a leader. And the same problem with Iftach. Only here, paradoxically, it says, Vayishpot Yisrael bimei plishtim. 
if he's leave, even though he apparently hasn't solved the problem totally, and Shimshon, unlike Yiftach, Yiftach defeats Ve'amon once and for all. Shimshon, these skirmishes which are back and forth, back and forth, he never really decisively beats. So in that regard, Yiftach is leaving a nation. He's, he's going back to history and he's talking about the na- one nation versus another and he engages them in a decisive battle and defeats them. With Shimshon, these are kinds of skirmishes which never are conclusive. So he's, he, at some point he propels his, uh, his battles or this military uh, leadership into Vayishpot. And you have the same problem that you had uh, with Iftach. Shimshon is once more the right, he may be the right person, but he's certainly the wrong, the wrong role. And this tension throughout between him and Zikne Yehuda, because Zikne Yehuda represents a more moderate uh, traditional leadership. And Shimshon, with his whole mindset, his whole mode of action is totally different. And there's, there's this tension because he, he's trying to lead in one way, they're doing something else. His, as I said before, his leadership is very problematic because of this. Um, and eventually, um, and then eventually, of course, we have the story of um, Shimshon uh, at, at the end. He's at, what happens is, uh, essentially, is the following. Shimshon, like Yiftach, was, uh, as I said before, he was an excellent Moshiach. However, uh, he was not built to be a Shofet. He became a Shofet. We know very little, except the fact that his Shvita never really emerged from the shadow of the Plishtim, that he remains in tension with, uh, with the rest of Yehuda. In other words, he's not too successful as a Shofet, because he's not really equipped to be a Shofet. And uh, essentially, you have as follows. The first half of Sefer Shoftim, Moshi'im, who either are not requested to become Shoftim, or when they're requested, they refuse. That's Gidon. You have, in Sefer Shoftim, the transformation from the Moshiach to the Shofet, accomplished by these figures, the banality is in the Psukim. No, the Shafat, he had the Banim, the Banot, all these Avdon ben Hillel Peratoni, or Tola ben Pua, or Yair Mehar Yisachar. Their major goal, their major achievement is the ability to transition from Teshua to Shvita to leadership. They're able to do that. However, once they establish the smallest paradigm, those are, the next time is a military crisis, and we need the Moshiach, so the, the, the optimal model is what was offered to Yiftach. You lead us, no, it's you lead us militarily and we will be the political leadership. He refused. By Shimshon, so we never, it's not too clear who did what. Lemaise, he became a Shofet. Neither he nor, uh, neither he nor Yiftach really belonged as Shoftim. That in a sense is their tragedy. And, uh, that's what the Gemara Rosh Hashanah calls them Kal Shabakalim or Kale Olam. Because they are very good, the Moshiim, but very poor Shoftim. So, as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, when the Rambam wants to mention Shimshon in a different context, the Rambam says, Al Yisrael. That's the phrase the Rambam uses. Don't think that Shimshon the Moshiach. Because the Rambam wants to talk, he doesn't talk about Shimshon a Gibor, nor does he talk about Shimshon a Shofet. He talks about Shimshon Moshiach Yisrael. Because if Shimshon should be remembered for anything, 
he should be remembered for the Teshua, because he was an excellent Moshiach, but a poor Shofet. That's his tragedy, and that's the tragedy of Yiftach. But in the meantime, we've seen the accomplishment also of these minor figures who accomplished a major transformation. So there